This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. It's a pleasure to welcome all of you to the, uh, the third World Beyond the Headlines event of the winter quarter. Uh, as many of you know, this uh, program is sponsored by the Center for International Studies, the International House, the Seminary Co-op Bookstore, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Um, I especially want to thank the Chicago Council on Global Affairs this evening. Um, they left the start time off for this event, so I think many of you called me or emailed me over the course of the week, so I really feel that this is you know, my personal invitation to everybody who could be here tonight. Um, I just want to announce a, a couple of things. Uh, for those of you that are coming off campus, we're on the verge of our uh, finals week and then spring break. So our next event won't take place until April 12th. Uh, Thursday, April 12th at 5 o'clock, there'll be a program with the U.S. Ambassador to Korea. 4 o'clock, I'm sorry, 4 o'clock uh, on April 12th. Uh, the U.S. Ambassador to Korea and the Korean Ambassador to the United States will be speaking on the current security and economic situation on the Korean Peninsula. Um, that event is co-sponsored by the Korean Consulate of Chicago and the Center for East Asian Studies. Also wanted to mention, uh, once again, as with uh, all events in this series, tonight's event will be recorded and available for your uh, podcasting interest on the World Wide Web, either through our site, uh, kiosmos.uchicago.edu, or through uh, Chicago Public Radio's Chicago Amplified program, which is at chicagopublicradio.org. Uh, slash amplified. So uh, with that, it's a pleasure to introduce James Mann, who's currently writer-in-residence at the Foreign Policy Institute of the School for Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He has served as a staff writer for Los Angeles Times, including positions as the Beijing Bureau Chief, National Security Correspondent, and Foreign Affairs Columnist. Mr. Mann has received numerous awards for his reporting and writing, including the Asia-Pacific Award for the best book about Asia in 2000. Um, we have his books for sale in the back uh, from the seminary co-op. If you're interested, I wanted to note that um, I first heard of Mr. Mann in the context of his previous book, Rise of the Vulcans, the History of Bush's War Cabinet, um, about which Georgie Ann Geyer said that it is the, uh, the best and the brightest, or destined to be the best and the brightest of the Iraq War. Um, so that, like I said, those for sale in the back, along with the book he'll be talking about tonight, which is The China Fantasy, How Our Leaders Explain Away Chinese Repression. So please join me in welcoming James Mann. Thank you very much. I think I should point out on the reference to the best and the brightest that that title was facetious um, originally and in the context of my book on the, on the Bush administration. Um, this new book, The China Fantasy, uh, is a reflection my reflection on about 20 years of watching the interaction between China and the United States. At first, um, for a few years, as uh, uh, the Los Angeles Times correspondent in Beijing, but really for most of the time um, in Washington, where I was a diplomatic correspondent. Um, and really, over 20 years, I became fascinated with American ideas of China, American images of China. Um, and how they, how they were formulated, what they represented, and how certain ideas persisted. 
and I wanted to look at those ideas and really um, what they represented, what purposes they serve. And so the, the focus of the book, what I call the China fantasy, is the idea that American trade with China, American investment in China, are going to lead to some kind of um, profound or far-reaching change in China's political system, that China is inevitably bound to, for, for some sort of far-reaching political liberalization that will bring an end to its um, repression of uh, organized political opposition um, that, or to an independent judiciary uh, or to a completely free press. Um, and what I try to do in the book is to look at the possibilities for China's future. Where, where is China headed? And as I see it, there are really three possible scenarios for China's future that, that we can um, examine, and, and that's what I try to do in the book. And the first scenario um, is what I call the, the soothing scenario. Um, it's, the, uh, it's the one that American um, leaders tend to um, fall back on when they're really talking about China in public. And that is that the current political system in China is going to inevitably change into a more open system. And I try to give you a few paragraphs from the book from time to time. Um, the soothing scenario has become the professed view of American presidents, both Democrats and Republicans. Over the past decade, in order to win the nomination for the presidency in either of America's two major political parties, it has become virtually obligatory to offer the American people some version of the soothing scenario. George W. Bush paid obeisance to the soothing scenario for China at the very start of his first presidential campaign. This was a speech in 1999 where he said, trade freely with China and time is on our side. In saying this, Bush was merely echoing the words of Bill Clinton. Uh, the Democratic president had told Chinese President Jiang Zemin at a 1997 press conference that you're on the wrong side of history, implying that history by itself might open up China's political system. And um, at another point the same year, uh, Bill Clinton had said that uh, the economic changes in China would help to increase the spirit of liberty over time. I just think it's inevitable, just as inevitably the Berlin Wall fell. And that is the, um, the classic uh, formulation of what I call the, the soothing scenario. And it's not just um, Bill Clinton um, or George Bush. You get similar ideas from Tony Blair, who visited China about two or three years ago and said there is an unstoppable momentum towards democracy in China. A number of commentators have said the same thing. Well, that's one scenario. Um, let's look at the other two. There's, uh, the second is what I call the upheaval scenario. Um, and this, in this version of China's future, China can't go on the way it is. I think the vernacular would be that something's going to blow. Um, and people who believe in this scenario point to waves of protests in the rural areas, strikes, um, or less dramatic, um, but equally, um, but, but other kinds of problems, like problems in the banking system, and say um, that sooner or later things are going to come to a head. And this view was encapsulated 
in a book a few years ago by an author named Gordon Chang. The book was titled The Coming Collapse of China. And it was, it was an interesting, thoughtful book, but uh, it doesn't persuade me, and as I, I say in, in this book, The China Fantasy, um, China's a big country. It's managed to hold itself together in one way or another um, over time. Uh, I don't see any sign of collapse. The government um, both uh, makes efforts to overcome rural unrest. They may not be entirely su successful, but um, both its policies and a fairly strong, uh, very strong security apparatus um, are enough to overcome uh, um, problems in the countryside. I just don't think any of these are going to lead to a collapse. I just think that's not realistic. So what does that leave? That leaves what I simply call the third scenario, and it's the one that I think gets the least attention, which is that what we see in China is what we're going to get for a, for a reasonably long time. Um, one way or another, the essentials of the current political system would remain intact. There would be no significant political opposition, no freedom of the press, no elections beyond the local level. There would be an active security apparatus to forestall organized political dissent. Why do Americans believe that with advancing prosperity, China will automatically come to have a political system like ours? Is it simply because uh, the Chinese now eat at McDonald's and wear blue jeans? To make this assumption about China is to repeat the mistakes that others have made in the past. That is to think wrongly that the Chinese are inevitably becoming like us. And I quote a American senator um, a, a good f over 50 years ago now, 60 years ago, um, under, uh, at the time of uh, China under Chiang Kai-shek, who said, with God's help, we will lift Shanghai up and up until it is just like Kansas City. Um, and those absurd dreams ended in disappointment. So in the early 1950s, this is not just the United States always trying to imagine China as becoming like it. Um, in the early 1950s, Soviet leaders thought they were recreating a communist China that would be similar to the Soviet Union, and they too were wrong. Well, why do American leaders keep talking so much about the soothing scenario? Um, why do they keep holding out to the public the idea that China is always about to uh, head for dramatic political change? And I, I look at that, and, and what I think is that this idea that China is about to change um, has served certain interests in Washington and in American political life. And those interests themselves have changed um, in the 80s really in the last decade of the Cold War, the United States was carrying on, carrying out what Henry Kissinger called a tacit alliance um, with uh, China against the Soviet Union. This was, Cold, this was Cold War cooperation. And that included military cooperation. And questions would come up in Congress and, and elsewhere, well, what is this about? Uh, I mean, it, what it was about was straight balance of power, realpolitik, but people would say, well, why are we cooperating with one communist government against another? And the answer 
the, the formulation took hold um, that China really was about to change, that it was changing. Uh, this was China under Deng Xiaoping, and uh, he was, in fact, dramatically changing the country's economic system. But what took hold in Washington was the political system was going to change, too, that, that Deng in, um, intended to carry out far-reaching political reform along with the economic reform. And it was a way of easing the way with Congress for military cooperation. Well, um, that period really uh, ends at the end of the 1980s with the events of 1989, the Tiananmen Square crackdown, and also separately with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And for a couple years, and I was in Washington then, China poly policy was up for grabs. People didn't quite know how to explain it. And there were, um, this was the uh, administration of George Bush Sr. Um, and he kind of groped for explanations. There was a point, um, a strange one, where he suggested that we, that the United States uh, policy towards China was based on the fact that the, um, we needed to counteract um, the rise of Japan as, uh, and he dropped that after uh, quite quickly when, when people pointed out that that was a, a funny thing to say. Japan was an ally of the United States and it wasn't necessarily clear that Japan was a, a rising military power as he seemed to be implying there. Um, and then in the early 90s, this idea of a China that was headed for or inevitably headed for political change took on a new constituency, which was the business community. That is, as, as trade and investment in China became ever more important, um, American companies were um, beset with questions uncomfortable questions about exactly why and what was the rationale for doing business with a repressive government which had fairly recently um, ordered its, its troops to fire on unarmed civilians. And what took hold was the paradigm of inevitable change, which was not only is, was, China, was China destined to open up its political system, but trade would be the key that would unlock the door. Now let me look in more detail at the arguments that are usually made on behalf of, of what I call this first scenario, the soothing scenario, that China is destined for change. One of the most common, um, it's an interesting argument, is that China is inevitably going to follow the path of its neighbors in East Asia, uh, South Korea and Taiwan, both of which had authoritarian governments, dictatorships really, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and in, in the 80s um, turned towards democracy. And so the argument is made, um, the same thing is going to happen in China. And uh, I look at that and I just don't think that's, I don't think the analogy holds for a couple reasons. First reason really is that South, both South Korea and Taiwan in different ways had a, were dependent on the United States for their security. The United States um, had the kind of influence there it will never have with, with China. Um, and the United States pushed um, for its own reasons um, very hard for democratic change there. And so in the case of South Korea, you can actually put a date 
1987, on the time when their people, their demonstrators in the streets, um, the leader of Chun Du Huan is resisting the idea of, of elections, um, is thinking of putting down the demonstrations, and the United States sends an emissary to Chun Du Huan and says, um, we think that you should give way to elections. Um, in Taiwan, it was a more gradual process, but the dynamics were the same. Those dynamics um, obviously are not going to hold for, for China. And so I just think the political situation is different. China is much bigger. China is less tied to what I would call the, um, the East Asian political culture, uh, the open coastal traditions um, that South Korea represents. Um, it's got huge inland areas. I mean, if China were just Shanghai or just were its southeast uh, coastal areas, I might think that it's part of the same traditions as South Korea and Taiwan. But it really is just, it, it's a different country. It's much bigger. Um, all the dynamics are different. So that's one of the arguments. The second argument uh, that usually gets made is what I call I call it the star Starbucks fallacy, and I'm um, indebted to the, the New York Times columnist um, Nicholas Kristof for inspiring the idea, because he, to, to, he went to China a couple years ago. He visited a Starbucks, and he wrote an interesting column which said, um, suggested that, that China was headed for political change because, as, as he put it, no middle class is content with more choices of coffee than of candidates on the ballot. Um, it was a provocative thing to say, but I look critically at this argument and don't think that one holds either. Um, uh, and the main reason is that the urban elites, the Starbucks sippers, if you will, are remarkably s small, are a very small percentage of Chinese society in the first place. And if they really were, uh, if there really were a ballot, which is what, what his quote suggested, they would be or stand to be outvoted by huge numbers of people in the countryside um, and by uh, migrants on the edges of Chinese cities. Um, these urban elites, um, who, who are the people that all of us tend to see on visits to China when we visit Beijing and Shanghai, um, are a small percentage of Chinese society growing, but still very small. And they have a fairly strong um, interest, in fact, um, the greatest one, in preserving the existing order. Um, they tend to be um, uh, nervous about political change and so, um, as I write, if, if you add together all the, the, the population of China's 10 biggest cities, um, you still get, you know, 70 million people out of 1.3 billion, uh, 1.4 billion. Thus, the paradox, the emergence of China's urban middle class is far more significant for its size when measured against the rest of the world, that, that you know, 70 million people is as big as as uh, uh, every country in Europe besides Germany, um, 
than it is as a proportion of China's overall population. So if you're a multinational com company trying to sell consumer products, such as soap or cars, then the, the rapid rise in spendable income in China's city, largest cities is of staggering importance. Um, however, the mathematics changes when we turn from marketing to democracy. When it comes to any national elections, that new Chinese middle class, the Starbucks clientele, is merely a drop in the bucket. Those in the avant-garde in Chinese cities have every reason to fear that in nationwide elections they would be outvoted. And then, and then the third um, argument that's often made is that China is already changing. And in fact, it is in economic terms and in, in smaller ways in political terms. But that simply raises the question of whether the smaller scale um, changes in China are going to lead to a fundamental change in the political system or going to reinforce um, the current one-party system. Well, finally, wh why should we care at all about China's political system? And I admit freely that the main and first reason I think we should care has nothing to do um, with the United States or ourselves, um, but that it would be nice for a billion three, a billion four hundred a million people to have some kind of voice or say in choosing their own leaders. Um, I admit as a you know, convinced believer in democracy that, that it would be nice um, for the Chinese people to have some, some say. And one of the cliches um, that's really always bothered me in, um, about China is the one that goes people in China don't care about politics. I mean, that, that to me is, I think it's a stereotype and it's been proved wrong at, at, uh, at those times when Chinese people feel relatively comfortable in speaking out. That's the first reason. The second reason is that I think um, that um, we have an interest in stability in China, political stability. Um, China did have a fairly smooth and successful transition of leadership two or three years ago, but it was the first time in the last 50 years um, that you've had political succession without a lot of upheaval. Um, and then the, the third reason really does have to do with foreign policy, um, the United States and other countries, which is that um, China um, in its current form has been supporting repressive governments ar um, around the world like Robert Mugabe in Z Zimbabwe or the junta in Burma, government of Sudan. I don't think there's any question, for example, that if, if um, democracy in, in Russia were to hang in the balance, I mean, some people would say it does now, but if it was really up for grabs, there's no doubt that, you know, I, th I think that China would probably weigh in, would be just as happy with um, uh, um, an authoritarian Russia as with a democratic one. And finally, there is an issue of sheer um, honesty with the American people. That is, Americans have been told over and over again, I've watched this um, year after year, at every key juncture when China policy is debated, whether it's during an election or when there's um, legislation in Congress, um, that our policies were intended to and were going to change uh, China's political system. 
So um, it's, you know, it is a coherent point of view if our leaders were to say, there's nothing we can do about China's political system. The Chinese system is going to stay the same. Um, it's going to continue to, to uh, repress organized political opposition for a long time. That would be an argument. Um, it would be, I mean, in philosophical terms, it would be, you know, sheer realism. The fact is that's not the one that does get made. Um, that, uh, at, that at each of these junctures, when American leaders seek to explain their policies to the American people, they don't make that argument. They say, we're going to change, this is the way to go about opening up China. And why? One reason is it, it seemed, they seem to be afraid that um, if they made this argument from sheer realism, they would get less public support. Well, what can be done? Um, I mean, I'm not here with a very specific five-point program, but there are all kinds of things that people can do. Um, people can um, contribute to human rights organizations. They can make sure that um, political repression in China is a political issue. On the economic side, I think we, I haven't um, discussed economy and trade as much, but um, people could insist that this administration push um, for adjustments in the value of China's currency that would affect the, the trade imbalance. Above all, I think that we need to evaluate trade as simply an economic issue. Trade is trade. There are economic benefits to it. Uh, to trade, lots of them. There are economic costs also, lots of them. We never quite do this cost-benefit analysis because whenever the United States is considering trade with China, the argu argument gets made that this goes beyond economics, that trade is going to tr um, change China's political system. Um, so, you know, I think we need to start thinking about China's future without illusions about political change. And when we do that, I think, you know, we can start to come up with um, a realistic China policy. And so the final paragraph of the book, my own conclusion, I've, I've never written a book in which I hoped so fervently that I'd be proved wrong. It would be heartening if China's leaders proceed along the lines that American, America's political leaders predict. It would be wonderful if China opened up, either gradually or suddenly, to a new political system um, in which the country's 1.3 billion people are given a chance to choose their own leaders. While wishing for such an outcome, I will not hold my breath. Thank you very much. I'd be delighted to, to take your questions. Yes. What implications do you see for the American economy, given China's um, ownership of so much of our um, currency, as well as other investments in the United States, as well as the enormous trade deficit that we face? Um, thanks. The question is the implications for the American economy of China's enormous um, holdings of American 
bonds uh, and the enormous trade deficit. Each one gives, uh, uh, one gives China considerable theoretical leverage over the United States, its holding of bonds and, and the idea that it could someday dump the bonds. And uh, the trade imbalance gives, in some ways, in, in theory, gives the United States considerable leverage over China in the sense that the United States is by far um, the biggest uh, consumer of China's exports. I say the theoretical in both cases because there are reasons that neither country is going to exercise that leverage. Um, I mean, there are a lot of reasons China will not suddenly turn around and, and sell all of its government bonds, but just to take one uh, in doing that, the value of those of China's holding, the value of the dollar would drop and China would suffer a big loss on its own. Um, I, don't, I think it, I probably don't have to take you through the problems with the United States suddenly announcing that it wasn't going to uh, buy any goods from China. So these are, it's, it's leverage that each country has over the other, but I think it, it stays in, uh, on the level of theory rather than, than practice. I think the three scenarios you described, at least as you described them, uh, two of them are going to be wrong, perhaps all three. Uh, but that aside, I think that there's a serious flaw in all of them, that they share the same flaw. And that is neither, none of the three take into consideration what the conclusions are. I wouldn't know, but I think one must consider in trying to look into a Chinese crystal ball the fact that there have been radical changes in China in the last 30 or so years that have made enormous differences in the life of Chinese society, Chinese people and government, and have been done relatively peacefully. And those two changes are specifically the end of genocide with the death of Mao Zedong, or the virtual end of it, and this change over to private enterprise. These accomplishments are quite radical in change, and we're done peacefully. Whether this means change will continue peacefully or not, I haven't a clue, but I think that if one is going to make a prediction about China, one needs to look back at this relatively recent develop, these relatively recent developments and say they're going to continue or that energy is burned out. It's, history will repeat itself or it won't, but we must look at the recent past and argue from there. Thanks. A, a couple points. I, um, the first point, point, yeah, I think the, the era of, of uh, whether it's genocide, uh, great, leap, great Leap Forward purges is over, and that's a tremendous change, and that, uh, that to me, I think, is, is, is irreversible. Uh, on the economic changes, uh, yeah, but I think it becomes, it's more complicated than that. Uh, in the sense that um, people in the countryside are better off, uh, generally speaking. Um, people in these urban elites that I mentioned are a lot better off. And so while the country as a whole may be better off, people tend to look at, you know, th there tends to be tremendous resentment in the countryside of people who are get, or, or on the edges of cities of people who are getting rich. So you get this disparity in income between rich and poor that leads to its own resentments right now. Um, and then the question is, 
to what extent do people hold back because they realize that the whole country um, is better off, than God knows, than it was in, you know, 40 years ago. These uh, three scenarios that you mentioned can only be understood through the lens of kind of the media, the information that we're fed by journalists and um, authors and so forth. And, and I'd, I'd like, you've been covering China for so long, I mean, I'd like a, a detached, savvy perspective on the quality of, of information coverage. that we get from Western reporters about China today. What, what are we doing right, but more importantly, what are we doing wrong and what could, could we do better? Um, the dynamics that I see in the broadest sense haven't changed, uh, which is I think that the, the coverage of China by the correspondents who are living in China um, is quite good. Uh, you know, we're talking about many, many news stories and different media, but generally speaking, I think it's, it's pretty good. Here's where the problem comes in. The problem comes in um, when, with the filters that get applied to that coverage, uh, and I've seen this sort of on, on both ends. Um, the problem comes in with the news magazines, the 60-minute shows that are done from outside, um, the you know, editor in the home office, the producer back at the studio, who take a look at what the correspondents in China are doing and guide their coverage and tend to favor whatever the image of China, I, I call it a frame of China, of the decade is. And they tend to reinforce the existing perceptions of China. And those existing perceptions um, don't change much. They, they change from decade to decade. So in the 50s, you get these perceptions of China as you know, a d disciplined society, um, automatons, you know, that kind of stereotype, and a lot of stories from outside that, that feed that. Uh, there aren't many Western correspondents in China then. Um, in the 70s, after the Nixon opening, you get a sort of romanticized view of China, almost for, uh, Pearl Buck, the good earth. Um, when, when correspondents really begin to be admitted to, uh, to China, to be stationed in China in the, in the 80s, for a, long, for a while you get um, images of uh, China goes disco, and you get uh, China goes capitalist, and this was true in general, you just couldn't, it was hard to get stories in, in this period, in the 1980s, about some of the continuities that um, political repression continued. Um, because people, you know, that, that didn't fit the stereotype. And then you get a complete 180 degree turn after the Tiananmen crackdown. You get um, editors, producers asking and visiting correspondents sort of landing in Beijing and sort of saying, take me to the crackdown. And every, for about three or four years, all the coverage of China was crackdown, 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 and you couldn't get stories about anything else in the paper. Um, and then sort of by the late 90s, you get 
what I would call the current series of perceptions, which is all uh, rising China. Um, so the, the common news magazine cover of China is sh Shanghai, um, glitz, and it's, again, hard to get stories of, of rural China or um, political problems. It's China's rise and China gets rich. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, this may be hopelessly unrealistic on my part, but I would, you know, I would like to see in each of these periods stories that run contrary to these images. Um, I've, what I've left out, actually, I've, on the economic coverage of China, uh, you get, I would call, the, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times view. Um, it's all uh, free enterprise. China, China goes capitalist. Everything is free enterprise, and, and the system is much more complicated than that. So my, my problem with the coverage is it tends to reinforce the existing images. There's another image that I found in a Falun Gong International publication, which is available in the grocery store in Hyde Park, if anybody can get this. But I saw no image of this whatsoever in our general press. And this is that uh, the Chinese government takes Falun Gong demonstrators who were exercising in the park together, that's the extent of their philosophy, and they, they euthanize them and sell their organs on the international markets. And this is how they treat their own people. And they voted for an 18% increase in their military budget yesterday. Now, what do we really face in the future with a society that's going like this? They hold our means of production, they hold our bond issues. If they were to do what the president of Venezuela did this week, which is to nationalize oil, they could bring the West crashing to a halt in one day. So what is their purpose? What are they really working for? Uh, let me address the, the broad one first, and then let me come to the, a couple of the specifics. I think, I think that... Um, that their intention over the next 20 years or so is to develop their economy and they want a tranquil environment in order to do that. Beyond 20 years, I think it's really hard to say what the intentions are. I think China intends to be. Um, it is in some ways becoming a, you know, a, a great power. It's starting to act like that and certainly I think 20, 25 years from now um, all the more so. On the, um, on the specific Specifics you mentioned, and so uh, they just announced a 17% increase in the defense budget. That's right. They're developing their military. I do not see China the, as a bottom line, since I think this is the, the, uh, um, what you're asking one part of your question. I don't see China as a military threat to the United States. There are people in Washington who talk about China as a military threat. My bottom line judgment is, I, you know, I, I don't see it that way. Um, and the reason I don't has uh, more to do with the United States than, than China. When you talk about China developing its military, with this, we have a, a, a country which is, uh, and we're all you know, taxpayers, spending hundreds of billions of dollars um, for our military. Um, and not all of it is wasted. Uh, not all of it is diverted to Iraq. And, and really, um, in some military confrontation, which is hypothetic, entirely hypothetical, um, I just don't think that China poses a threat to the United States. Um, that's not 
the argument of this book. Um, there was another part to your, oh, on, on follow, well, I have not, this is, you're right, this is something that has appeared in Falun Gong uh, publications. Two parts, Falun Gong clearly was subjected to tremendous um, harassment and persecution in China when the movement first flourished at the end of the 90s. Uh, and there were people thrown in, there, you know, its leaders were thrown into jail. There are people who died in jail. Um, in the last, a uh, year or so, uh, there have been allegations in Falun Gong publications in this country about organ harvesting. I have not seen any, you know, independent substantiation on this. I, I will tell you, I haven't, you know, haven't spent a long time trying to substantiate this, um, but I haven't seen any independent corroboration of this. And there are people who've tried to corrob corroborate and have not. I would be remiss first if I didn't commend you on um, the tremendously good read, uh, Rise of the Vulcans. Uh, your, your very incisive and insightful look into the decision-making process of the Bush administration. Anyone remotely interested in U.S. foreign policy would, could do uh, far worse than reading the book. So I, I, again, I, I congratulate you on that. And if your current book is nearly as compelling, then it should make for a great read. Um, I, I had two questions, one regarding demographics, the other uh, regarding strategy. Um, with respect to demographics, <clears throat> we often hear uh, concerns about the disparity between young women and young men in China. If I'm not mistaken, I think the current ratio is about 100 to 115, whereas most other, say, Western societies, it's more like 105. Um, and, but to my way of thinking, there's an even greater concern, social concern down the road, and that is because of the you know, the suppression of, of numbers in, in the younger generation, you have um, an increasingly aging population. And I mean, very similar to what we have here, but magnified, I think, to a much greater degree. And is the Chinese government doing anything to come to grips with that phenomenon? Uh, that was the first question. Second one, as I said, was strategic in nature, and it relates to North Korea. Um, and that is, what, what really is China's position vis-a-vis the, um, the talks uh, with no, uh, uh, North Korea. And as I see it, there are sort of three schools of thought. One is that um, China um, is, has, has no vested interest um, in, in helping out or cooperating with the U.S. It, it, it's very happy to see the U.S. bogged down in Korea. Um, the second is that, in fact, Chinese uh, leaders are beginning to realize that it's not in their long-term national interest to see a nuclearized North Korea for variety of reasons, perhaps the most compelling being that it could lead to a nuclearized Japan, which is certainly not in China's interest. And the third, which is probably the one I subscribe to, um, is that, and, and perhaps this really is Chinese foreign policy in microcosm, that there is no grand design, that there's sort of, it's, it's very much an improvised policy, that very much like their domestic policy, so, it's, it's um, um, being done by osmosis, I guess you could say. They're sort of touching and feeling as they go, and, um, and trying to work out, um, you know, a lot of uh, power uh, grabs within their own uh, governmental hierarchy and don't really have a clear idea of what is necessarily in their best long-term national interest. Um, to the extent that those three paradigms do apply, which do you think most accurately describes the Chinese leadership today? Let me, 
I'll, I'll answer the North Korea one first because you just, um, well, I remember the three options. And I, I think um, that for a good while, that the first option uh, uh, w um, applied. Uh, but really, uh, in the last few months, uh, and particularly after North Korea conducted a nuclear test, I think China began to look at it to calculate its interests differently and to see that it really, um, it really was not in China's interest to have um, North Korea proceeding along the lines far enough to be carrying out nuclear tests. And that, that did raise um, the question of whether other countries in the region were going to try and follow suit. Um, and so really China, um, on whom, after all, North Korea depends uh, more than anybody else for um, oil and food, um, really did, I think, uh, indirectly, well, directly, but, but not publicly, pressure uh, North Korea into um, the current deal, if that's what it is. We, we, it's yet to be worked out. So, um, you know, I tend towards the second. I'm not sure that the, the third, which is that they don't really have a policy and that they, uh, they in effect, improvise, uh, you know, uh, I don't think that's incompatible with this sort of gradual change from, um, from being happy to see the United States bogged down um, or having no interest in producing um, some kind of um, agreement on North Korea's nuclear program to changing their mind and, and wanting an agreement. I think there are different different points of view within the, the leadership, um, but I would I would opt for the second. Um, your questions on demographics, I agree with 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 both of those. You're right. The 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 um, sex ratio is about I think it's 1.15 uh, males to every one female born. Um, you said that's not like, West, like Western countries, and that's true. It, there are other, uh, China is actually, that, that ratio is even bigger in a couple of other um, countries in Asia, in particular in, in, in South Korea. This is, I think, the arrival of the um, sonogram, really. Um, and that one presents, uh, sort of interesting questions of social policy. Uh, you know, you see speculation, including in the Chinese press, of, you know, there are going to be um, large numbers of men in search of brides and so on. And sometimes this goes on to the next step of will uh, Chinese men go to other Asian countries looking for, for brides. That's kind of, uh, that's to, to me is sort of ethereal the real question is the other demographic question you mentioned, which is that um, as an un unintended result of the one-child policy, China is going to have this aging population very quickly and it's going to have a serious problem, even more serious than, than other countries in about uh, 30 years um, on how many, how many people are working to support how many um, uh, people who are retired. Um, and the problem in China is that they haven't really worked out yet a social security 
system or a welfare system to support it. There are, you, you asked if the government is trying to do something, and I think, I think you know, they are, and they're just they're looking at this, but they haven't begin, begun to build the, the infrastructure um, to, to um, manage this aging population. I'd like to um, return to the topic of organ harvesting and the persecution of Falun Gong. Um, there has been an independent report that is independent of Falun Gong sources that has been done on the organ harvesting. Uh, David Kilgore is the former Secretary of State for Canada, Asia Pacific, and he and a colleague, a human rights lawyer named David Mattis, also a Canadian, uh, did a report last summer uh, on the organ harvesting. Uh, they're not Falun Gong practitioners. They looked at all the evidence, and they concluded this is in fact going on, and it's massive in scale. Um, the, the accusation is that uh, Falun Gong practitioners are being kept as a kind of living organ bank, and that when transplant centers inside China uh, have someone who presents themselves needing a kidney, a liver, a cornea, a heart, then they send the tissue type and other information into a system, and uh, a Falun Gong practitioner is identified, their organs are harvested while they're still alive, and then the organs are used to fund what has been a very lucrative market. And if you look at the rates of transplant in China since 1999, when the persecution of Falun Gong began, they have skyrocketed. They're far, far higher than they were before the persecution began. In general, regarding the persecution, I would suggest that the uh, Western media in this instance, apart from uh, a few uh, stories filed by Ian Johnson or by Philip Pan of the Washington Post have not done a very good job. Uh, the kinds of questions that could have been asked about the organ harvesting story are very simple and could have, could have, uh, could have been developed very easily. Uh, they haven't been. If you read the reports by Ian Johnson or Philip Pan, what they report is that the persecution of Falun Gong is not a matter of a few leaders being arrested that it's comprehensive, that anyone who's identified as practicing Falun Gong in China is subject to uh, arrest, the loss of property, homes, brainwashing, torture, and if they don't give up the practice, torture into death. And uh, no one has a clear idea of the numbers, but they're huge. Could, could I ask you to come to, to turn a this question? Into a question yeah. To turn this into a question, okay. Uh, <laughs> Is it true the Western media have done a poor job covering the Falun Gong? Um, actually, you just mentioned uh, the coverage of one of one of the best uh, reporters for American papers, Ian Johnson, who did um, some wonderful coverage of uh, uh, on Falun Gong. Philip Pan, who you mentioned, also. Uh, so uh, you know, I, Western media coverage they um, includes correspondents who've been quite critical of China's treatment of Falun Gong. I would point out to you also that Ian Johnson, as I recall, um, also did a story from the United States about uh, sort of looking into the organization of Falun Gong, how it was organized, it, its leadership found, found it somewhat mysterious. Uh, that's, so that's the same reporter. Um, I, I would agree with you um, on Falun Gong as almost any story that it tends to be a handful of reporters who look into the actual issue 
and you know, different, I was a correspondent for a long time. People choose their own, the, the issues that they really get interested in. And then all too often, other people simply pick up the three-word description or the three-paragraph description uh, and don't look too closely. Um, that, I think I, that's true of Falun Gong as, as it is for many issues. Yes. Um, Abraham Maslow uh, uh, was associated with his uh, hierarchy of needs. And it seems to be your thesis is that trade will not change China. Um, but I, w I would think that trade would increase the wealth of the people of China and that their hierarchy of needs would change as a result and that this may trickle up. I don't see why it wouldn't. So I would say, why wouldn't it? Um, I really can't talk about the theory of hierarchy of needs. Trade um, is bringing benefits to China in a very unequal way. Uh, and so there are, uh, again, the elites in Chinese cities are doing, you know, doing just fine by trade. There are people out there in the countryside and in the Chinese cities who um, not only are resentful of the way trade works out, but sometimes, in, you know, in the extreme example, accuse the United States of, um, and, and other, not the United States, but, but uh, Western uh, investors of propping up the existing system. So, you know, trade's benefits are, uh, are very unequal. The, um, I mean, I know there are a lot of people in factories that come from the countryside out there, and then they send money back to the uh, countryside. Um, so I would be thinking that, I mean, I mean, I'm not as familiar with this topic as you, but I would be thinking that everyone's wealth is increasing, although maybe disproportionately. Am I wrong there? Or? Well, again, that's what economic theory tends to, to tell us. Okay. Um, in China, it doesn't, I think it doesn't necessarily always work out that way. Um, the people who are, there are people who are going to factories, uh, they tend to come from the countryside to work in factories uh, in, along the southeastern coastline in China, um, make wages that are uh, uh, in real terms uh, better off than if they were back, um, you know, back home. Uh, at the same time, the opening of trade has led to um, closing of big old state enterprises, which are um, huge numbers of factory workers, as it turns out, really often clustered in, in the old uh, Rust Belt, the sort of northeast of China. And they're very unhappy. So, you know, if anybody has sort of lost out uh, in uh, the opening of, of trade, um, it's been factory workers um, in old line state enterprises, and there are many, many thousands of them. So they don't they don't like um, trade as much. If if there was in a fantasy world, if the wealth was generally increasing, even in small amounts. Would that not increase the power of the people across the country vis-a-vis -vis their government or not? If, if it was increasing overall in, in a relatively equitable way, mm -hmm. 
Yes. Uh, but it, it, it's the it's the income gaps that that produce the tensions. Is that okay. Okay. answer so your question? Pardon? GDP per capita compared to a Western country. GDP per capita is is you know up into the, I, I you know I think it's a, a couple thousand dollars yeah, so now. Well, I, I mean, even among the peasants that come in from, uh, you know, the countryside, I, I mean, there's a film coming out called uh, China Blue, and they were getting six cents an hour. Six cents? Yeah. In the country? In Canton. Okay, so. All right, thank you. Okay. Well, okay. I don't know if this is a question or more of a voice from China. Um, I would say I don't quite agree with your idea that um, the Western media has a good coverage of China. My general impression from a perspective of Chinese student who just come from China, from Shanghai to this city for less than a year, my general impression that United States is the, the big superpower of the world and it's more publicized itself to the world in which in China you could know every small detail of America. But in America, I don't think, at least from me, I look on the New York Times, but I cannot find a good coverage of Chinese news. I cannot find the, usually the news are biased in a way or other for those that sensational good news that you always look for the big stories. Um, on this perspective, I don't quite agree with the idea that the coverage is good. And I want to ask if you agree with me to some extent, um, what kind of measure do you think can be taken to increase the understanding between the two countries, especially on the side of Americans to Chinese young generations? I think our generation is really the representative of the future China, but instead of um, be stuck in the impression of 50s China or China in the 80s, we don't understand some of our parents' measures, things either, but I think we are the future. And this is a question. And another thing in answer to the previous ones in concern with the Falun Gong, Frankly, I don't know too much about it. I think one thing um, I think Chinese government should improve, and I do agree with some critics about Chinese government, is that sometimes they do not efficiently transfer, make their things transparent to the public. Sometimes even Chinese people do not know what's going on there. I think that's one thing which is very, very bad. So what's going on often is that you only hear one part of the voice. For example, Falun Gong, I do know that there's a Canadian report. It's from the lawyers. It sounds very convincing. But have you ever heard from the other side, from the Chinese side, what do they say? Very little. I think that's sad. We should be able to, sell, to, to, to say something. One of my graduate students who is in biological department is now writing for the Scientific America and other journals covering this issue 